Welcome to the Holistic Business Podcast, where healers, makers, mystics, and other weirdos who don't quite fit the mold learn how to grow businesses that sustain them and their communities without working all the damn time or feeling like they're selling out. I'm your host, Sarah M. Chapel, and as the founder of the Holistic Business Academy, I've helped thousands of small business owners just like you to grow supportive, holistic businesses. Now, it's your turn. So what is capitalism? Why does it matter? How does it impact your small business? And how are you potentially recreating these harmful systems inside the work that you're doing on a daily basis? Which my guess is if you're here listening to the holistic business podcast, it's actually not a goal of yours. Um, good news. Stephanie Najar is here today to tell us all about capitalism and how it impacts small businesses just like yours, like mine and like hers. Stephanie is a life coach uh, with a business that is rooted in decolonial values, witchcraft and the esoteric tool of human design. But previously uh, was a PhD candidate in political theory at Johns Hopkins University and actually specialized in the theory of capitalism and colonization because, of course, they are connected. Um, Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to dive in with you. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's such an honor. I love being in your HBA community. I love learning from you. I love the space that you hold. So it's an absolute privilege to be here and to be discussing capitalism with you. So, okay. Just give us the quick, quick rundown. You were, you studied this in school. You were in a PhD program for it. I guess basically I'm like, why you, why are you going to be telling us about capitalism today? I have spent a lot of years studying capitalism. In undergrad, I kind of decided that I didn't want to be part of the labor market. I was like, I'm done. I was like an activist student and I was like, I can't be a part of this world that's just exploiting people. People are working for so little. There's so much injustice. So I decided to take refuge in academia, thinking that academia was going to be able to give me all the knowledge and learn. And so starting in 2015, I did a PhD. I enrolled in a PhD program in political theory because I wanted to understand things like power, capital, private property, even um, decolonization, colonization, how did it work? Because all of these elements are connected. And so I spent a lot of time studying these things. I even um, wrote my dissertation on witchcraft, witches, why they were in, in the medieval times and in the Renaissance. That is so cool. Were, yeah. <laughs> and then I realized I just wanted to be a witch and not just like write about witches. So that was a big <laughs> revelation for me. But I studied all these different elements um, because in political theory, you just have to end up you end up studying everyone like from Aristotle and Plato to uh, Michel Foucault and Judah Butler and queer theory. So I have a, I have a pretty good training in all of them, but yes, that's, I guess I've just spent a lot of time and, uh, I am very, very passionate about communicating why capitalism is important for us to consider, not just as a system that exists out there in the economy and the markets and stocks, but also that we, that it seeps into our psyche, how we function as humans, it shapes us in the same way that we talk about racialization, racism, gender, it, they're not like systems that exist out there. They shape who we are and how we show up. So does capitalism, because of course, all these systems interlock and work together. So there is such a thing as internalized capitalism. And because we're part of this holistic business community, we are all like, we, we care about running a business that isn't rooted in values that, you know, are all about burnout and, um, working really hard and exhausting ourselves and running on empty. So there you go. Excellent. Thank you. And when um, came, this conversation actually started over in the Holistic Business Academy membership community, um, because people were asking some questions like, hey, how do I actually learn like what capitalism is and how it's impacting my life? And Stephanie kindly offered to do a bonus training for our members on it. So if you are an HBA member and you haven't checked it out, go there because Stephanie was able to go way more in depth in that training. If you're not an HBA member, well, uh, what are you waiting for? Maybe this is your miss is your sign. Um, but so let's dive in, Stephanie. Yeah, what is capitalism and why does it matter? Absolutely, it's a really big question, which is why we did yes. <laughs> over an hour and a half of ex explaining what capitalism is, because there's also different stages in capitalism. So the one I'm going to be focusing on in this episode is neoliberalism. You probably have noticed the term being used. 
um, also known as late stage capitalism. It's, it's an evolution of capitalism because when you think of capitalism today in 2022, it's not the same as capitalism in 1890. It's not the same as capitalism in 1940. When you think of capitalism in 1940, we think factories, we think factories in North America, you know, we think Ford, we think GM, we think booming cities such as Detroit um, being and, and rooted in, in industry in uh, extracting raw resources. We think of Baltimore Steel, we think of Philadelphia as big cities. Um, and now what do we have? We have the Rust Belt. We have cities that are incredibly like that have been emptied out of the resources and have have had to reinvent their economy. And now we're more focused on services, on intangible things, whereas industrialization has moved to other places. So capitalism has evolved a lot, the geography of it, the timeline of it. And we, starting from the 1980s, we've moved into a different phase of capitalism. It's quite different from what I just described. And it's called neoliberalism. And what that means is we are inhabiting a capitalist system with more and more deregulation, less and less control. Um, the government is shrinking its services, its safety net. Um, so for instance, like going back to the 1930s, there was the Great Depression. And what happened after that, the government stepped in and was like, we cannot let people, you know, without a safety net, we need to build institutions that can support people so that this doesn't happen again. The Social Security Administration was born all other bureaus were developed to support consumers, to support people. Um, stimulus projects were developed. The Keynesian era began. Now, these institutions, Medicare, Medicaid, the Social Security Administration, they're all shrinking. Um, aid is being removed. And what, does, what, does, what happens is that you create precarity. People are more precarious. People, more and more people need to do, need to work two jobs in order to make ends meet. Um, more and more jobs don't offer benefits. They don't offer uh, help. Um, they don't offer like uh, medical insurance and, and other advantages like that. So this is what I mean when I'm saying that the government is shrinking, aid is shrinking, and people are just really left to fend for themselves. Whereas corporations are growing at um, a, a really gargantuan like a speed and they're absorbing more and more smaller corporations. So we're seeing bigger monopolies. We're seeing mastodonts of companies and corporations, multinationals. So um, as the government shrinks and corporations grow, what happens is the worker, the workers are completely like have, have zero support. So we're entering into a gig economy, um, a system where there's a lot more flexibility. So we're less in the nine to five structure more into like this flexible, like create your own schedule um, and, and, and try to find ways to figure out your own health insurance, your own health care, these sort of, sort of things. And so this was a concerted effort starting with Reagan and Margaret Thatcher to shrink the government so that the pressure is on the people to make things work. And so I think we're, so this is neoliberalism at a political level, but also um, it's creating impact on us as people. We are internalizing these logics, these capitalist um, neoliberal logics, and they're impacting the way we see ourselves. So whereas, say, pre-neoliberalism, there was a quite clear distinction, a, a, a very clear line was drawn between work and hobby, work and leisure. It was nine to five, and then you came home and you rested. People had holidays. And things like that. And, and workers really fought for that. They fought for their free time. They fought for their holidays to be given. What happens now with neoliberalism and the way we've internalized it, it's a lot messier. We, we begin to operate ourselves as machines. We see ourselves as enterprises. We've internalized this logic of growth such that even in our free time, it, the logic of, of growth bleeds into um, in our in the space that is non-work, that is not work, uh, we have a productivity mindset so that even when we're resting, we're thinking, I need to be doing more. Um, we feel guilty for resting, even though we need rest. And this is not just us. It's a societal issue that stems from neoliberalism and late stage capitalism really taking over not just our work, but our psyche. Um, we operate under a scarcity mentality, a market comparison. We tend to compare ourselves with others with this idea of scarcity, that I need to be the best 
best in order to succeed. Um, but abundance is limited. So this is very capitalist. It's coming from the, from the capitalist logic of scarcity. Um, not feeling good enough, needing to do more, needing to consume more, needing to consume more in order to be more competitive. All of these are features of how we've internalized uh, neoliberalism and how it bleeds into our life such that there is no longer this clear line. Capitalism is everywhere and it's in our psyche and we can also be reproducing it. At the risk of sounding like a total noob, because I think I slept through my high school economics class a little while ago, I picked up an econ book because I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to read this econ textbook. Mm -hmm. And the first paragraph is like, economics is the study of like how to manage scarce resources. And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know if I could read this book. <laughs> like mm -hmm. the fundamental, the idea that the fundamental like thing here is that scarcity is a given and mm -hmm. that somehow out of that scarcity, companies are creating record profits. And at mm -hmm. this particular moment, so weird, all this inflation or inflationary pressure and record profits. I, Matt, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. It's wild how that is what is like literally baked into us that it's possible to have more and more and more, but there is also not enough at the same time. And that tension inside mm -hmm. a human body just seems like impossible to reconcile. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we talked about in the HBA training where, uh, where that you need to have certain pillars and social structures in place for capitalism to function. So scarcity is constructed and it needs to be, we need to believe in it for, for capitalism to work. Um, private property is constructed. Without private property, you don't have capitalism. Private property is a new invention relatively. It did not exist until the late 1500s. So we need certain things in place, including labor, making labor available, being able to offer labor in exchange for a wage. So it's it's like work has existed forever. People have been working for ages. What makes work capitalist is certain things, certain pillars in place to make it capitalist. And um, a lot of these things are social. They're not economic. They're social values and they're social structures that are in place. So what you're saying about the scarcity is it really is something that we've internalized so deeply that not only does it affect the way we see ourselves through comparing ourselves and competing. I mean, we've ta been taught from a very young age to compete. School is um, a competition where you get rewarded for, for being the best. And you're, you're being taught that there's only so many few people that can be at the top, um, that there's this pyramidal structure already within school because only a few people can get the best grades. Um, create that hierarchy. So all this to say that um, structures need to be in place. And when we internalize them so deeply, it takes over our imagination. We can't even think outside of scarcity, or we can't even think what would a world outside of capitalism look like because it's so deeply, and it's been passed on from generation to generation. So maybe I want to challenge scarcity but all around me, it's it's repeated as a message or in growing up, it was repeated as a message. So there's a lot of unlearning to be done individually, but then collectively, we need to do that work. So how do you see well, scarcity? Sure. But also this, this neoliberalism, late stage capitalism showing up and impacting small business owners. So I think that there's small businesses and, you know, I believe continue to believe that this is mm -hmm. in this context, one of the most powerful ways for people to be properly compensated for their work is to be their own bosses and a place where we have the opportunity to envision different ways and to make different priorities and to have our values kind of come through our work. But that doesn't mean we're immune from it, right? The small business obviously mm -hmm. is existing directly in relationship with the economy and the social structures. So what are some of those impacts that are happening on business, on small businesses, both like as like the person themselves, but also the way we're running our businesses? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So two things. The first thing is that what you're saying about a business being a great way to get compensated and to survive and navigate capitalism, even though we're spiritual uh, business people and we're holistic, et cetera. Um, I a hundred percent agree. And why, why is it that there's so much potential in having a business? Because we live in capitalism and having a business is literally like having your own little kingdom. And we're so propped up to have a business. Like everything around us is set up for us to succeed or, you know, the structures are 
are meant for us to succeed in a business. But what's so cool when we have like an alternate vision and a different set of values, political values and social values is that we can really have a business and subvert it. So I think it's super cool to also be like, okay, I have a business. I'm going to make it work for me. I'm, it's my space where I can make choices and it's a space where I can get really creative and think about how I can challenge capitalism. So that's um, like even just like reframing and thinking, actually having a business has a lot of liberatory potential because I can reclaim my time. I can make decisions that are based on my values and there's no one to tell me what to do. Um, which is, you know, a nice like flipping of the narrative of what having a business is um, in like the, you know, mainstream conventional narrative. Um, So then in terms of what I see in small business owners, including myself, is truly a struggle with resting and struggling with knowing to draw that line. Why? Because the business owner, the holistic business owner has to wear multiple hats. You have to be your own boss, you have to be your own worker, and then you have to uh, shut it, th- shut down that part of your brain and say, I'm going to rest now. I'm going to experience leisure and relaxation. And I'm going to step away. It's so hard to do all these things. And giving ourselves permission to rest, I see that there's a lot of struggle with that, um, especially depending on people's like personal energy levels and health. So, of course, that plays into it. And also upbringing, being told that you're lazy or that your worth is attached to your productivity. These are, of course, capitalist values that are being recoded and translated in our personal life. So depending on the kind of rest wounds that we have and that we've inherited, that can also create like a lot of pressure to be constantly productive and to um, internalize this growth mindset, this productivity mindset that I need to be constantly doing more than what I'm doing. And that this idea that working more is better. And these are actual threads that came up in our training discussion of business people, business owners in our community and HBA saying, I think that working more is better, um, feeling guilty about making time for rest. So that's one of the ways in which uh, capitalism can seep into our um even if we're trying to challenge it, sometimes it's hard to see the ways in which capitalism is impacting us and creating um, and shaping the way that we interact. So that's one thing. And the other thing is we talked about scarcity already and like comparing ourselves to others and feeling like the only way to succeed on the market is to be exceptional and is to be the best and is to have a million followers and all these things that can also create tremendous pressure And a false sense of reality that somehow things are going to be, for instance, like if I had 20,000 followers, all of a sudden everything's going to fall from from the sky and everything's going to fall into place. So that's, again, like the promise of of, uh, scarcity uh, mentalities that once you make it to the top, everything's going to be okay. And um, of course, that comes from like an individual, uh, an individualist framework of I need to be the best and I need to be the best at the expense of other people. So this, there's, there isn't really like a collaborative or communitarian aspect to it. So these are a couple of elements. There, there's, there's, there's more too. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing these. So also be like, you were like business owners and me too. And all I want to be like, me too. Like the, <laughs> these are things that I also directly deal with. The rest one is so insidious. Um, even like rest or just like time that's not spent on business and time, like you were saying, like spent on like leisure activities or other things you enjoy or relationships or in mm-hmm. your community, or just like, I don't know, cooking, like whatever, like humans, human living stuff. You know, we are currently, I say we're trialing, but it's going really well. So I expect we'll keep it, um, a four day work week inside our company. And that came out of a couple things, but one of the big ones was this tendency that I know I have, which is that first of all, I will drag out work to take longer because I think that I need to work more. Right. It's like, and if you've ever like worked in any traditional job, it's like you, like you have to sit in your seat and just like be, make yourself useful. So mm-hmm. I had that kind of like time thing, but I also noticed, started to notice that it was becoming harder and harder for me. And it had never been easy for me to, like you were saying, to like turn off my brain and be like, okay, I'm putting down all of these hats right now as an entrepreneur. Um, and it took me really until I'd say probably a couple months ago to admit, I think there was some part of me that thought that as I was growing my business, well, of course, in the earlier years, I had to work so much because it was just me and nothing was working. 
And I think I had still been buying into that and being like, oh, the only mm-hmm. reason we can mm-hmm. do this now is because there's a team in place and we're more successful or blah, blah, blah. Y'all, there was literally no reason I needed to be checking email. So a customer support emails multiple times over the weekend, every weekend for years. There was nothing was going to happen. I'm not curing cancer. No one fucking cares. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I was in this place where I was like, oh, we have a team and I don't want them to have a shitty life. So I, I guess we better do something better that I was able to make that change. And that entire time I was still telling myself this story that like, oh, but that was necessary for success, checking mm-hmm. the email on the weekend. And it's just, it's, it's a silly example, but it's one that stands out so firmly in my head because the often we think too, that that's part of that scarcity is like, you were saying like, oh, 20,000 followers, like all these things are going to happen that you're also going to be different at that point. You're going to get there and you're magically going to be able to turn it off and, and have a different relationship to your work. And it's just not true because like, it's Mm -hmm. so insidious. Mm -hmm. This is also the capitalist relationship to time that there is progress that we think of progress as linear. And we think of um, we're, we're, we're constantly moving towards growth. And once we reach a certain point, things can kind of run on their own or that we certain, or we deserve rest at that point because yep. we've accomplished something that can be tangible and that is, that is measurable by money. So it's like so many layers are happening at, at that time so that we give ourselves permission. Now I can rest. Or now I can create a different schedule that is better for my well-being as opposed to before, because before I was in the development stages, we see this with startups, we see this with artists. There's so much grind that happens at the beginning um, and free labor and just like working a lot with very, very little pay expectation that one day there's going to be a payout and it's all going to work out. And, And it's true though, because that's how capitalism works. So a lot of times that model does work. But is it the model that we want to use for, for our business? And do we want to burn out and normalize burning out um, for the promise of what's to come? Yeah, it was just an acute moment for me where I was like, oh, I mm-hmm. totally have bought into this myth and I lived mm-hmm. into this myth and I made choices based off of this myth that now I can look back and be like, there was absolutely no need for me to do that. Like my business growth mm-hmm. was not impacted Mm -hmm. by me responding to support emails on Saturday and Sunday. Like that is not the thing that made our business successful, but like, I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, but like, it was just, that was that, that myth of work hard, Mm self-sacrifice you'll get there kept playing Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So within this like context, like some of those we have, we have rest, we have scarcity. Um, I also think there's a really interesting relationship that people have to their own, to their own labor and to their own work in terms of, I mean, a whole mess of things like, like, I mean, worthiness, money, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. they charge, um, mm-hmm. how is that playing out at this moment with small businesses? And what are some places there that we can kind of like look through things, look at things differently, or as you said, like subvert some mm-hmm. of these, these deeply ingrained beliefs that we're holding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a key part of how capitalism works is that we need to be extracting our labor. Like we need to put in labor to create something or produce something in exchange for a wage. It's a lot easier to understand when we're working for someone else because we're just, we have a wage, we have a salary, we put in this amount of work and the the boundaries are clear. When we're working for ourselves, it's a lot harder to see the extraction. And so therefore we work a lot and we're sometimes it can be easy to be like, okay, I'm still going to work even though, um, I'm working at a a very little pay or even sometimes no pay. So that can create like a little bit of exploitation or burnout um, or pushing ourselves with the expectation that eventually it won't be like that. There will be improvement. There will be remuneration. um, There will be a a wage or a salary or something. So I think um, an important thing to remember is that your your work is valuable. It's just as valuable as if you're working for someone else. So- Yeah. Yeah. Working for yourself is, is an amazing, it's an amazing privilege and it's really exciting, but it doesn't mean that you need to be running yourself ragged. So centering, uh, centering, not the output or the outcome, but centering first your well-being. And I know you've said this before, Sarah, um, center your needs. And when you center your needs, then that's also going to shape your business model. It's going to shape what you prioritize, 
the things that you're going to do so that you're not doing all the things and you're not, you're not making burnout almost a condition of running your business. Because when you do that and you do burnout, you're going to start feeling like you're self-sabotaging or that you're failing because you've created expectations that are so unrealistic um, and that don't truly, that aren't really attuned to your personal energy levels and priorities and life and relationships such that when you, when you're not meeting those expectations, you feel like you're doing something wrong. So um, it's important that when you're wearing your like boss hat to say, okay, how can I make this a healthy business experience, a sustainable model, as opposed to really like driving myself hard and then, and then burning out and feeling like I did something wrong or failed. That's also coming, that's connecting to the worthiness. If our worth is connected to how much we produce, then we're going to start feeling really sad or frustrated when we're not producing. So we need to find a way of reframing such that, of course, we have to be productive and we have to work, but reframing what that means so that our worth is able to continue growing with our business as opposed to being conditional on productivity or even conditional on how much money a business is making. Um, so so being able to, to, to separate like, okay, depend, you know, if you're in the early stages of your business, how much you're making is not going to define your worth as, as, as a coach or as a entrepreneur or a holistic practitioner. So I think these are some things that I'm thinking about. It's so messy being in neoliberalism and having all the pressures also of paying bills of probably not having health insurance because you have to do all these things yourself and the state is not really there to buttress you or support you. There's all these things happening. And at the same time, you're um, probably there's, there's likelihood of being of reproducing or operating under capitalist logics within ourselves. So recognizing that and thinking, okay, how can I make some shifts that are helpful? Because I've seen a lot of people think of themselves when they're resting, they think of it as self-sabotage. And I'm thinking that's so interesting to think, to frame it as self-sabotage, because it's almost like there's this idea that the business needs to keep rolling, needs to keep moving. And that's the thing, like capitalism needs to flow. Everything flows in capital. So when something breaks, we think something bad is happening. I mean, that's why strikes are so effective. When workers decide to stop, um, earnings stop, the company is really hurt. So we think that, okay, if I'm resting, the momentum is lost, therefore self-sabotage. But we need to, we need to reframe that. I remember like your business is your world. You can you can bend it and shape it in a way that can sub- subvert and challenge capitalism. Not You don't have to follow the way it's been done before. This is you know, so foundational, I think, to this subversion, right? Is exactly what you're saying. This piece of like, that, that if you are not actively working at every minute that you are doing something wrong, and I see this is mm-hmm. self-sabotage, and people have come up with all these interesting names for it. It's like, I feel like a while ago, nobody would say they had imposter syndrome. Now everybody says they have imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. It's like, we have pathologized rest, reflection, um, you know, the moment before the idea comes. I just went through like a really messy, like month or two of like having no idea what my next steps were supposed to be. And I, I literally, I figured it out this morning. After oh, like two, yeah. I know. Yeah, it was, it was great energy, <laughs> but I feel like two months of being like, and like having these stories, like I'm a failure, mm-hmm. I'm fucking mm-hmm. up. I'm letting everyone mm-hmm. down. Um, and trying to rest and like doing a lot better of carrying myself during that phase. But it's, you know, we, we, like it is pathologized now. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and can mm-hmm. actually lead to pathologies like burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, the mental health industrial complex and, <laughs> and sure. um, labor, but, um, but it it is kind of a fascinating place where we can start to notice those stories and actually do make shifts and that there are not just, you know, in terms of how we think, but also then building those business models that allow those kinds of spaces where we can, as you said, break, pause, rest, reassess instead of this constant, um, I, I call it the like fallacious perpetual motion machine of mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. of constant growth right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that is not like, we actually don't have to do that in a small business. You don't have shareholders. You don't have people who are like saying, I need my, my top line profit or else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the logic of immediacy and speed, 
is definitely part of capitalism and how we've internalized it. So when you when you say that for two months you were actually incubating, like yes, whatever idea that was happening, it needed that two months to incubate, to simmer. I really like these these words like simmering and brewing and it's it's about to sprout but it needs that time for it to to rest like this is why resting is so transformative and generative allowing yourself that space for the idea to come forward when it's ready when it's fully formed being able to give birth to that idea that's really amazing and so the the feelings of the pathologization that you're talking about of of procrastination or like even the idea of procrastination is like being negative. I like to use the word incubation because it's not as negative. It's like nice. We think of it as it doesn't have that stigma, but procrastination is is what it is. Like you're not actually wasting your time. You're doing something very valuable. It's just not measurable by output because you haven't produced the thing yet. It's latent, it's coming, but there's this constant expectation of being able to hold something in your hands. Otherwise it's not worthy. So therefore um, we can, we can create, we can inflict that on ourselves and be like, well, I haven't produced, I haven't created, I haven't produced something that can be seen or touched. And then, then that's, that's when we, it can get messy that we can get hard on ourselves and expect a lot of ourselves when really the process is slower. It's more cyclical. It's, it waxes and it wanes. You know, we're, we're following cycles. It's not this linear progression towards progress and growth and production and performance. So it's like, it was like performance is a whole other little, I'm just like taking mental notes. It was like, oh yeah. Future topics. Performativity. Yep. Especially in business. I mean, welcome to Instagram, right? So mm-hmm. This and is, cult of personalities as well, and deification and glorification of, you know, uh, big thing. <laughs> well, maybe we, let's just like touch it today because I think we actually have a really great topical moment right now, which is Elon Musk is uh, buying Twitter or mm-hmm. he's agreed to buy Twitter. He has not bought it yet as of the recording today. By the time you listen to this, he probably will have. Um, but it's so interesting seeing how people um, believe that. There are, of course, lots of different perspectives, but there's so many folks who are like, but Elon Musk is the greatest entrepreneur of our um, generation, and he has such a vision. It's like this this, um, cult of personality around some guy who happens to be rich is like very fascinating and playing out on the large scale what happens on these small scales and the way that we are encouraged to, as you said, yes, to deify top of the class worship people that mm-hmm. we think have, I mean, I don't even know what beat the scarcity mm-hmm. game. Like what are we so obsessed with here, Stephanie? I think we capitalism likes to celebrate self-made people who were able to make it to the top and it's creates, Yep. Mm-hmm. And it creates this, it contributes to this myth that we can all make it just, you know, goes back to the very like, um, colonial and racist and gendered roots of capitalism, most people who are the top are cis straight white men. And, but they, they, we like to believe in these stories of victory, of overcoming, of, you know, pulling yourself up the bootstraps and making it because it creates this idea of a meritocracy that we can all make it. And it's just a question of being better and doing better and working harder, but it's not true. It's, there is so much at play systems that are at play that make sure that most people don't get to be rich. And then the people who do are the ones who are celebrated. And so the people who are deified, I see this in like, you know, in on Instagram as well. So like not necessarily yes. super world, world famous people, but famous in their niche that their claim, they become rich and through their business. And then part of what makes them legitimate is that they're rich. It like becomes this. Yes. Um, it, it, that they're making like a lot of prophecy money. thing. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like I have something to teach you that is valuable because I've been able to really generate wealth when the two are not necessarily connected. Like you can generate wealth and then basically sell a get rich quick scam through the language of, you know, whatever medium you're using, whether it's like toxic spirituality or any other medium but really that's what you're selling. You're not really teaching anything besides 
saying, Hey, I made it. You can make it too. One, but that's really, that's, that's dangerous. And to say that, like, you can't necessarily make it too just with, you know, journaling and diaries and manifestation and the whole like money's energy discourse. Um, yeah. I was like, I call that the meditate your way to 10 K vibe. Um, where I'm just like, cool. I wish. Um, yeah. What is money energy, Stephanie? Let's talk about that. Is it though? A lot of things. I, 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 I think the money is energy discourse. I think it's gaining prominence and it's becoming more popular because people want to believe in an easy way to make money. So people want to, whether it's coded in this like manifestation language, which is there, therefore, you know, like we're in the realm of toxic spirituality or if it's in the get rich quick scams that are, you know, in other worded in other ways, they, what they have in common is a way of making money fast and making money, like a lot of money fast. And these are, there is no formula. There is no real way of making money fast. So anyway, but there to, is not says the business no. coach. It turns <laughs> yes, out there is not. You, you've said it to us and it's actually really helpful for you to remind us because sometimes I can even get sucked into it and feel like, Oh my God, I've been working. I've been working so hard at this. Like my business is relatively new. It's like six, seven months. How come I'm not booming yet? And it's like, okay, no, hold on. Like these things take time, you know, and you're there to remind us like takes time. It takes work. It's not going to happen right away. And I think that's the problem with the discourse of money is energy because it creates the expectation that if you just put out the right energy, like the energy of like, I deserve money, I deserve to be wealthy, I deserve abundance, all these things, you're going to, the money is just going to come. So just to nuance, I do think there's an energetic dimension to it. I do think that working through your money wounds, your money blocks, um, understanding where the block is located, that's really important work to do. Just like healing anything in our life involves looking at the pain points and looking at the wounds and healing them, whether we're doing that work by ourselves or with a coach or with a therapist, all of them, like it's important to do that work, but to, to think that to create like a relationship of, um, like correlation between the two, that's when we start having issues to think, Oh, if I do this work, then I will make a lot of money. That's a faulty correlation. There's a lot of things that need to be done in order to make money. That's why I'm an HBA because I need to learn how to do these things. There are formulas. There are things that need that we need to learn and that need to be put in place. And time is part of the equation, like putting in time, like the promise of making my, of making 10 K months in two months when you've just started, of course, that's alluring. And of course these programs like sell like hotcakes because um, they're selling a dream. So unless you're very lucky and, you know, maybe Jupiter's in your corner or something, you know, astrologically, you're like meant to be wealthy at a certain, you know, at a young age or whatever, like, sure. But most of us are going to have to follow a certain structure. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think it does kind of loop exactly back to what we started the conversation with, which is like, this is a cultural, um, and societal Im- embedment, that is not a word, um, but idea that is embedded in us too, about, as you were saying that, that speed and like the, like the relationship between like scarcity and speed, if you can't like outrun scarcity fast enough, if you can't like, if you can't do it overnight, that you're also then doing something Mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just kind of loops back into the productivity culture and the no rest because you should be rich by now. If you were Mm -hmm. any good at what you did, Mm -hmm. you would be successful by now and you're not. So you're a fuck up and you need to work Mm -hmm. harder. And it's just a loop you can't break out of. Like think of what kind of impact that has on our worthiness to think, I just got started and I'm not making this, this amount. What does that say about me? Am I even meant to be doing this? And it's just also, it plugs into this, um, this cultural aspect that we have of fast satisfaction, wanting to be satisfied right away, wanting immediate results right away. Things, certain things take, take longer than that. And it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. And it doesn't mean that you need to take that and internalize it as something uh, you're lacking worth or you're lacking, um, what it takes to be wildly successful. 
I want to go into your story a little bit because this entire conversation is also personal to you, not just because it's your educational background, but also because it's your lived experience. I mean, it's all of our lived experience, but you made this transition (laughs) from that you you were assuming academia would be a refuge from (laughs) wage labor life. And um, you actually have left that and started your own business. Mm -hmm. So whoa, what happened? (laughs) Why did you, why were you like, never mind? I'm going to go in a different direction. (laughs) Wow. I learned so much from being in academia about higher education. And I realized an important lesson that we're, there is no space outside of capitalism. There is no such thing. We're always going to be in it. And so the question is, how do we subvert it? in in what we're doing, whatever it is that we're doing, as opposed to trying to look for a parallel universe. And I learned the hard way that, you know, I was in academia, I was in a PhD program studying racism, studying power, studying power dynamics and capitalism, all these things and colonialism. And yet I was feeling this huge disconnect between everything that I was learning and my very existence in that incredibly toxic, white, masculine, straight space. I felt so unseen. We were a handful of women in a program of men, white men, very, very few women of color. And it was weird because it created this atmosphere of competition and of scarcity between the POCs and the women. So there like in it, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, that's a symptom of how white the space was. It was so white that, you know, people that weren't white were competing with each other for attention. And professors like sometimes didn't even remember my name. There were like three women in the class. I'm like, you can't even remember my name, you know, like things like that. So I was learning a lot, but I was feeling my sense of confidence and self-esteem gradually eroding, eroding to the point where I felt like I had nothing to offer. I felt like I was, I was really uh, lost and wasn't feeling like myself anymore. And I felt very trapped, so trapped that I couldn't even possibly fathom leaving because I just felt stuck. So it took me a few years to even rebuild that confidence in order to gather the the courage to leave and to think, okay, there is a, there is a future for me outside. I'm not stuck here. I think sometimes what happens is that, that when your self-confidence is so low, you're like, I don't even know where to go anymore. I'm just, I, I'm stuck here. So I, I had to do a lot of work and um, honestly, what pulled me out and was very healing was actually spirituality, like tarot and astrology. These were the first two tools that I was exposed to. Receiving readings, also learning these tools was very, very helpful. And then I realized um, that part of the liberation work that I needed to do was to rebuild my self-esteem and to realize I do have a lot to offer. And so to therefore shift the way that I was seeing myself, because I had started seeing myself in a way that was really worn down by the institutions I was in. And so I had to redo that work. And that's when I discovered human design as well as a tool. And what really resonated with me in the human design tool was the, the emphasis on energy and looking at our energy flow and the premise that not we don't all have the same energetic way of showing up in the world, which is very different than like the capitalist pressure to always show up as a worker, as a doer, as a um, performer, producer. So when I discovered my energy type, I was, I'm a projector and projectors are really here to rest and, uh, and guide and observe, do less, rest more. That really resonated with me because I was like, whoa, I've never, ever seen myself. So I've never felt so seen. So um, and even part of a community. So, so that's when I really started seeing the liberatory potential of um, this tool, but also of having a space that helps people see who they are in a different light. Because when your self-confidence and when the way you see yourself has been so shaped by messages and by the spaces that you're in, it can be really hard to see yourself in a different way. So I'm basically, the business that I started is creating a container for the younger self, the younger me that was stuck and that needed a way to see herself in a different way. So um, the, the, the container now is basically that is being able to um, offer readings and coaching uh, and a different lens on, on who you are and in a way that is empowering. And of course, the lens that I use is 
um, informed from my social theory background, my decolonial background. I use HD. I use human design in that in that way. I use I coach in a way that is um, the underlying values are that as well. Oh, so that's, a, that's my story. That's how I'm here. That's how I started. That's why I decided to start a business because I, I left academia and I was like, okay, I want to do something and I have a message and I have so much energy. I mean, I, in academia, I, I loved teaching and mentoring undergrads. I really enjoyed being able to mentor. And so I was like, okay, I, I still really love that. It's still a big part of who I am. How can I mentor? How can I teach? How can I coach? And in a context that feels a lot more fulfilling and stimulating and that doesn't expose me to the very forces that, you know, really um, brought me down and, and, and burnt me out. So burnout is also a big thing. What are you doing as you start your business um, and are in this like initial growth stage to, mm-hmm. to support yourself, to create those systems and structures that subvert the burnout paradigm? I really have a limit on how much I work uh, every day because I notice that if I work more than a certain amount, I burn out and I feel really like I have this work hangover. So the next day I'm like really dysfunctional and like slow. So I'm trying to create a structure. It's still not perfect. I'm actually working with a coach right now. And it's amazing having a coach, having that reminder, having that support. Um, it's, it's, it's a form of self-love for me. And it's an investment in growing my business to have a coach that is there to remind me. And we do a lot of different techniques, like breathing techniques, but mostly we talk and being able to see myself with clarity. That's, that's really helpful. So that's going, that's going to help me like create a structure to create a routine that is nourishing. I have so much to say about routine because obviously like being burnt out, like that can create a difficult relationship to routine. I have what I call a structure wound, um, means that I don't have a very good relationship with structure. I try to resist it because too much structure was why I burnt out. So I'm trying to recreate a nourishing relationship to structure to remind myself that structure can be really helpful and supportive. I'm trying to find ways that my business can be rooted in nourishing structure, not one that is going to be hard or, you know, intense. So these are, you know, and of course I, my body is always guiding me. So if my body's tired, um, I don't try to adhere to this false sense of urgency. There is no real urgency in producing so that's one thing. And then the other, my model also is do, do what's easy. I don't need to be doing things that are hard. I really, for instance, I really enjoy talking more and I really enjoy writing. So why not, you know, do IG lives or a podcast where I can talk? Cause that's easy for me, but I wouldn't, you know, creating like pretty pictures that takes time for me, you know, graphic design that takes time. So I'm like, okay, let's put less emphasis on that. And let's focus on what's easy. So really looking for ease as opposed to, um, butting heads or like throwing myself against the wall and then like trying to do something that's not natural. Of course, there's things that I have to do that are hard and that are, that require more energy, but I really try to go for ease. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. I love those examples, especially that in terms of, you know, how you're sharing your work so often, you know, folks feel like we have to do everything and be everywhere mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. do all these different kinds of things. And there's probably like, mm-hmm. we all have different ways we'd like to create. Yeah. What mm-hmm. is easy for you? Mm-hmm. Um, all of our programs are set up around what's easy for me, mm-hmm. which is largely mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. same as you. So yeah. it's like, you know, if people want to learn more about your work, about this liberatory life coaching and human design framework and get support and start to get that reflection and care, which I just, we talked a little bit about this before the show and mm-hmm. we won't go into mm-hmm. it here, but I just love this kind of alternative, um, kind of educational coaching care network that is developing right now. It is like, I mean, it has been for a while, but it's just like so powerful how much amazing work is happening outside of the, uh, the establishment, if you will. Um, how can people learn more about you and, and work with you? Oh, cool. Um, they can learn about me on my website and, or follow me on my Instagram. I really like to talk. So I do IG lives. I do stories. 
Yeah, that's basically it. I'm going to be start I'm going to start offering trainings on capitalism because I'm starting to see a need for it and um folks have been like you inviting me into their communities to talk about capitalism to do, to do trainings. So I'm thinking maybe at some point offering a course. So that's that's also in the works for those who really want to focus on capitalism and learning and how to undo cap- like internalized norms of capitalism in yourself. So that's that's coming in the pipeline. But for now, the the way to work with me is through one-on-one. So I do readings. Um, I use human design in the readings. I also do coaching so we can go on a coaching journey. So there's different ways to, to work with me. And I love connecting. So definitely just reach out and say hello on social media or by email. And yeah. And what is your website URL for our listeners? It's www.stephanienajar. First, so that's my first name and my last name.com. Great. So we will link all of that up in the show notes. You can go check out Stephanie's work and um, watch her brilliant IG lives. And I love the idea of capitalism course. I think that is so cool and so tasty and so needed. Um, do you have any, any, any last words about you on the spot? Anything brilliant you want to share or just like normal and great because you're a human and your worth is inherent? You know, I'll just share a few words of comfort because I know that thinking about capitalism can get really overwhelming. And I just want to affirm that and say, you know, living in capitalism is messy AF and it takes a lot of energy to think like, okay, what can I do to challenge capitalism? So the framework that we're, that I'm pushing here is that the challenge, the subversion lies in the choices, in small choices, in small decisions. It doesn't have to be revolution with a capital R, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, the Bolshevik, the Bolshevik revolution, 1917, like, you know, kill all the royals and like take over. Um, because we we tend to think of social change in these like monumental ways, but social change can also be very small in the decisions you make so that when you are resisting, when you are choosing to rest, when you're choosing to not adhere to a false sense of urgency, when you're choosing to resist the scarcity mentality in your business, when you're structuring your business in a way that is energetically sustainable for you, these are all small yet incredibly deep and profound changes you can make. And the outlook here is that when we create small cracks in a very, very thick wall, the more cracks there are, that wall will crumble. So this is a very like natural metaphor to the environment of how things do fall and new things come up. But capitalism has a way of really taking over our imagination. And I just want to say, you know, that's that you're you're not alone. We're all there together. And it's about creating a network of support and sharing imaginations with each other, sharing alternative futures. And the way the choices you make might be different than the choices someone else makes. And it's about sharing resources and sharing knowledge and working together. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie, for all that you've shared with us today. I appreciate your expertise, your, um, your willingness to share from your personal story and to, for giving us just a, a foundation and a framework to start to more deeply understand this moment in time our role in it. And yes, those places where we can make those small choices that are work with work for us to, to push towards change. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was such a pleasure to be here. I love talking about these things with you. You have an amazing, amazing audience, and I am so proud and honored to be part of your community. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all make sure you go and check out Stephanie's work over in our show notes. And, um, if this resonated with you or was helpful at all, please share it with a friend. Um, I really wanted Stephanie to come and talk about this because it is a huge topic. It is overwhelming. There's a lot of shame and fear and all the things Stephanie just said. So chances are, you know, somebody who would benefit from this as well. So send it their way. And, uh, yeah, may we all, may we all make a chip in the wall. Mm-hmm. Thanks for tuning in to the Holistic Business Podcast. Learn more about growing your holistic business by visiting us at holisticbusinessacademy.com. We'll see you next time.